I'd like to acknowledge the traditional caretakers and inhabitants of this land across Australia. Also locally where I stand, the Beerpai people, who continue their cultural practices, wisdom and law. Hi and welcome to the Pollination Mamas podcast, where we have collaborative conversations, cross-pollinate and connect, as we span our wings across topics such as feminine wisdom, womb wisdom, herbal plant medicine, natural fertility awareness, postpartum care, sacred sisterhood, sacred motherhood, women's circles and deep connectedness. If you're here, I believe you too are on a journey to reclaim and revitalise ancient feminine wisdom in a modern context. Not only for ourselves now, but for future generations to come. Thank you so much for being here. Hi everyone and welcome to another Pollination Mamas podcast. Uh, We're really fortunate today to have a guest all the way from Dubai. We've got Layla B here who is well known for her work in Moroccan postpartum care. Layla B is an entrepreneur, mother, soulful change maker, business mentor, traditional Moroccan postpartum trainer, writer and philanthropist. She's a kindred soul with a fierce passion for helping you rise up and live authentically, love wholeheartedly, laugh loudly and lead soulfully. Layla's mission is to revive, reclaim and restore the sacred and ancient traditional Moroccan postpartum medicine to document the wisdom and keep it alive. Layla is British, originally Moroccan, currently living in Dubai with her Syrian Bedouin husband and family. She truly is a global citizen. So thanks for being here today, Layla. Thank you for having me. I first came upon Layla B's work. I'm not sure if it was through the Newborn Mothers um, Graduate Collective Training that we're both a part of, but um, I came to know of her Moroccan Postpartum Summit. And this was not long after I had really started delving into my own Um, commitment to postpartum care and becoming a postpartum doula and I joined the original summit and gained so much inspiration from that and have since been following her so Layla is so diverse and just even reading her introduction really kind of um, sinks in like how diverse she is and um, how holistic her work and vision is so Leila, I'd love to jump straight into Moroccan culture and Moroccan postpartum care culture, which seems like it still has a strong postpartum care practice and a strong history, but yet it's sort of on the precipice, on the border of, of not losing it, but of becoming a little more diluted and such an important time to revitalise and restore, which is what you're doing. Can you share a little bit more about that inspiration for you? Yes, definitely. So first of all, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. And I never thought I would be here today talking about birth, postpartum traditions and anything like this. And it's I've been led here from the birth of my son. So the first birth I had. So I had a negative birth experience and that just led me on a path of learning more about birth and how to support myself and other women around me. And then naturally, I just found myself very much into learning about the traditional Moroccan postpartum traditions. So for the past few years, I've been learning more in Morocco with traditional uh, qablas. Those are traditional midwives. So luckily, we still have quite a few in Morocco. I'm from the north, so I've already met three. There's many more, but three just from the town that we live in. And so I've had the honor to be studying with them and learning with them and able to share from them. And also just from my life in Morocco and the elders and just walking, if you just walk out to the markets and then you find an elder lady and I will just ask, can you tell me what they do for the new mother after she gives birth? And she'll tell me a load of different stories and traditions and herbs to use. And there's a lot of commonality and then some differences. So I became very passionate about uh, traditional Moroccan postpartum care because we have the 40-day traditions. So they're still very much alive in some places, specifically in the rural areas. But in the modern cities, 
that have been you know growing so fast and they're very modern it's slowly changing so some women have never even heard of many of these traditions and some are not interested in using them because they think they're old school and we need to be modern and give birth in hospitals which is what is happening nowadays and just follow what the doctors say and so all this traditional care is not being used as much however it does still exist and of course I've been working with traditional midwives and we have 40-day traditions so I've divided it into six stages of care for the new mother so we have welcome her honor her nourish her nurture her close her and celebrate her so these work in sync together and this is something that we teach on our program which I can tell you about later but basically it's starting from pregnancy she's the new the new mother to be is being welcomed and honored preparing herself for her new stage of life and then as soon as she gives birth she's nourished and then she has to have special foods so lots of warm hot foods nothing cold th foods that are easy to digest that, that will help to give her strength and we nurture her through traditional baths through womb steaming which we'll talk about later and closing her so we have a type of closing of the bones that I learned from some of the traditional midwives and celebrating her, which is done continuously, but we have some rituals. We use henna and all sorts of celebrations and parties to celebrate the new mother. So these are the main things, stages that happen for the new mother, but it's 40 days minimum of special rituals and care and healing, lots of warmth, support. There was a big community of women supporting women all the time and now that's slowly diluting as you said but hopefully more women like me and there's lots of other women who, who have Moroccan origin and even the Qablas they continue to keep these traditions alive and hopefully we can pass them down and and restore it and revive it thank you mm, fantastic yeah it's such an important time it feels like for me coming from mostly sort of British Isles um, ancestry but I live in Australia there's a lot of complexities there but in that um, we've lost our postpartum traditions even though they were there not that long ago mm. possibly less than a hundred years ago or a little bit more so for me to see a culture and to hear about a culture that's just at that edge but not letting it fall away not letting it be lost is just so uh, powerful and wonderful and um, mm -hmm. inspiring that you're sharing that uh, widely as well as inspiring people from um, your Moroccan background. So I have um, a background, anyone that follows me knows, I talk quite a bit about vaginal steaming or womb steaming, yoni steaming, has lots of different names in traditional care. And it is gaining a lot of popularity and momentum and for good reason, even though it's um, come out in like popular culture, um, it, in a very grounded way, in a very healing way, it is becoming more popular as well, especially in postpartum care. And actually Layla and I ended up on a little um, chat in a private group about this, talking from different perspectives when someone was asking about it. And I thought it was such a great balance. We're coming from traditional perspective, and then I've trained um, in a more modern way. Modern, I say, um, in a way that is combining lots of different cultures and herbal medicine. And I just thought when I was reading Layla's responses, how fortunate she was that she had this direct knowledge, like this apprentice cultural knowledge, um, unbroken lineage. So I would love to talk to you, Layla, a little bit more about Moroccan steaming and share as much yes. as you feel comfortable, of course. Um, it's quite a common practice postpartum with women, yeah? Mm -hmm, definitely. Every, almost every, not every single culture, but through my work, I've come across so many countries that still have 40-day traditions or 42-day, 44-day traditions, so very similar. So countries in Asia, such as Malaysia, Indonesia, almost so many, all the countries in Africa still hold on to the postpartum traditions. So we can see, as you were saying, for example, in England, these traditions have died. So with the countries that have become very modern and developed, quote unquote, so they have, <laughs> it depends how you view it, but yeah, um, so 
so these kinds of countries have these traditions have been wiped out completely but in morocco for example and many of the countries across the world so in the arab nation as well so we have pretty much all of africa the middle east these countries are still survive uh, these traditions sorry are still still surviving even though especially in morocco we've had a lot of colonization that took place and they could have been wiped out but thankfully so our ancestors over there who fought hard to keep all these traditions going and we have lots of traditions to do with all aspects of life not only for the postpartum mothers so i think that's why everything has managed to stay up to this day because it's it's become a part of life these rituals and so yes we also have womb steaming which is common in many countries around the world and as you said it's become sort of a trend now and then there's even some spas who are having womb steaming but maybe they don't know the history or the stories behind it but in morocco as you said it was it was common it was just normal and as you mentioned we were in that forum where we were discussing and because i i studied with the traditional midwives and this is something they've done for generations and one of the one of the traditional midwives so she's a traditional midwife and a healer and she comes from a lineage she says from the beginning of time that her family line has been doing this kind of work so she can't even say how long she just tells me it's from the beginning of time so she's she grew up with all these uh, traditions she does um, midwifery work she does postpartum rituals she heals people with all sorts of conditions um, apart from women's conditions any sort even sort of cancer different kinds of things she has herbs for for everything basically so whatever she tells me i just absorb and i i trust her because she's been doing it for centuries so i i've never gone into the scientific route so when um, some people were asking you know how does it get in and where does the steam go and how does it go up through this <laughs> canal or this place so, so i'm just like I, uh, to be honest i didn't even take time to go and research this there's not a lot of research on womb steaming specifically however for me it's just something that's been used for centuries and so we have uh, one of the womb steaming recipes we we shared that actually recently on one of our free trainings and so we used a different variety of herbs what's local and native usually so different varieties of mint mint is very popular in morocco like our mint tea and then uh, lavender is very popular rosemary sometimes uh, myrtle so we use these herbs for general women's health it's not only for the postpartum mother we can use this same blend this is coming from qabla rahma she's the traditional midwife in morocco and she uses this for women who have problems with infertility and uh, menstruation issues and for the postpartum woman and this is just normal this is the norm so it was nothing fancy or like i say i wrote a blog about it. it's nothing woo it's just normal so if a woman had the problem she would come and see the qabla and she would have a look and see and talk to her and then she would give her one of these steams to do and she said for infertility issues she would let the woman do the steam in her home for seven days in a row and not to leave her house at all so the idea is for the womb we have the special herbs which will help to provide optimum health to the womb and hopefully to help her clear anything any issues that are going on that are preventing her from possibly getting pregnant there's many aspects to it not only that but however it's also the warmth aspect so when she's sitting over the steam and all the steam and the, the hotness is going to her womb as well even from the outside i'm not talking about from the inside but from the outside so she needs to be kept warm to wrap herself and then we turn the the steam into a foot soak so the feet are very important as well because if you put if you put your feet in the hot water with the herbs all that goodness is going to be absorbed into the body from the feet so it's important that not only she does the womb steam but then she soaks her feet in the same water with the herbs and then we apply some olive oil on the feet like a massage and socks socks and just to keep warm and the reason the qabla would tell the woman not to leave her house was 
in order not to catch any colds, especially if it was winter time, it can be very cold in Morocco in some places in winter. So she would not leave the house in order not to catch any cold. And then this we also do for the new mother. She should not catch any colds ideally because it will take time for her to heal and could cause further problems. So we want the new mother to be warm all the time and any other woman having this kind of uh, care. So the womb steams have been very important, just parts of the parts of life. I still remember when I was young and if I had some sort of infection, my mom would say, we just put some hot water and sit over the steam. Even if it's just hot water, it's just the warmth as well, which is important. And even I was talking to my husband, uh, he's Syrian, but from the desert. The, so he's Bedouin and they lived in a tent. They had the pure nomadic life. And I was talking to his cousin who was telling me that they also did the same thing and they have a very simple life. So they don't have so many herbs and different things, but they have specific leaves that they pick from trees. So I just, she just sent me all this information and my husband himself was telling me, yeah, they just sit over sometimes hot water and use the steam from that. And they wrap themselves in the wool coats. So I'm collecting these recipes and hopefully we'll share some in my upcoming book which is in the process so thank oh, you very exciting there's a book on the way yeah there's so many aspects to the steaming and just from that practical um point of view that it makes so sense so much sense that a, a new mom should stay warm because um she has lost some blood she now doesn't have a baby inside her which was keeping her warm mm. so there's less blood flow but also it takes a lot of energy to stay warm just every day. Um, we're always regulating our temperature and any energy that can be conserved and put into healing, breastfeeding um, and looking after baby is, is very um, valuable. So by keeping the mum warm, just in that sense alone, we're preserving energy. But then with the vaginal steaming, it's interesting because if someone does like a, a steam sauna for like nasal congestion or respiratory congestion I don't know about in um, Dubai and Morocco and I'm sure in England they do but here we um, it's common if you have a cold to boil up some water put a few drops of eucalyptus oil because we have lots of eucalyptus here in Australia and get a towel and put your head over and breathe it in for 10 minutes or so and it helps to relieve all the congestion mm -hmm. now the steam isn't actually likely making its way all the way into the lungs but it is making it into the nose and the warmth just the heat and the eucalyptus oil is making their way in but I mean, no one blinks an eyelid no one says a thing <laughs> or they you might have a foot soak or put some epsom salts in your bath so that you can absorb the magnesium and no one says a thing but as soon as we're applying exactly the same principles to the womb area everyone gets a little bit <laughs> crazy about it which is interesting and maybe says a lot about how um, there's some unconscious programming mm -hmm. about women's health and um, women being empowered to take back control of some aspects of their health. That's not yeah. to say we're not thankful for modern medicine, but... <laughs> there's, um, yeah, definitely. That makes sense. But even in Morocco, I always used to do that and hear that. So just we put, as you said, hot water. We also have a lot of eucalyptus in Morocco put mm. some of those in the, the bowl and just inhale it. We always do that, as you said, the foot soaks. So we know and we can see that it is being absorbed into the body, either externally through the skin, it's maybe finding its way, who knows, but it's getting yeah. inside the body. So <laughs> it has been working. And, and for the womb, because some women were saying, oh, certain cultures, are only you know offering the womb steam because they they say that women are dirty and it's for cleaning but it's not about that at all well not in in moroccan culture i'm sure in most cultures it's not or maybe all i'm not sure but for us it has i've never heard anyone say go and do a womb steam because you're dirty or you just got off your period or you just gave birth and you need to it's not about that it's just about cleansing and healing and it's actually to support the new mom and celebrate her and provide the best care for her in all ways so it has nothing to do about you know being dirty or anything like that so maybe that's the kind of misconception people also have around it perhaps yeah i think you're right i think there's been some mistranslation um culturally 
around traditional cultures and the ideas of um, women's practices, men's practices, and especially around periods and postpartum and things like that, that uh, there's stories about how the woman shouldn't go to certain sacred places when she's bleeding. But when you break a lot of these things down, there's actually a really practical reason. And it's, it's often to protect and safeguard the woman not to mm. exclude and to have prejudice as a woman. And the more I talk to people from different cultures, the more I understand that. And I think that's maybe where it's been um, lost a little bit or people have misinterpreted it. Mm, but I'm, I think, yeah. I'm going to do a podcast interview with someone else tomorrow. So I'm getting all my notes together and I'm, I have um, some anatomy background studies and herbal, some herbal medicine background studies. So I'm just kind of putting it all together for people that need the scientific understanding. But there's such an intricate network of veins and capillaries and the skin is the most absorb, um, the largest organ and is highly um, absorbable, especially when you add heat, the skin's capacity to absorb certain things is, um, yeah, is really strong. So, yeah, I'll... I'll stay tuned and I'll share that with you once I do that. And I'm really looking forward to that book. <laughs> Thank you. I love yeah. that um, Moroccan culture uses olive oil too because um, here in Australia it's the perfect climate in lots of areas to grow olive oil. So we have lots of good quality uh, local olive oil. So when I learned that from you, I was like, oh, well, that's a good local resource here. I can use that. Yeah, in Morocco we have olive trees everywhere and the olive oil is the number one you know oil that we use for everything for eating for cooking for for medicine so yeah and it's found in many so in the mediterranean in your region as well the climate is similar so so it's perfect to be used yeah. in all, all aspects it is perfect which kind of brings me to cultural appreciation versus cultural appreciate appropriation and as i said as someone who's um, trying to learn and revive uh, somewhat a very lost postpartum culture from my ancestry while gaining inspiration from other cultures and researching my own culture. Um, it's an interesting place and I feel like I'm in a place where I need to do a lot of listening about that. So I'd love to hear your ideas around that. I often see food as a good bridge because we share recipes all the time and there's not as much appropriation there. But there are a lot of aspects to traditional care that we need to be a little bit careful not to jump on just because we've lost our own. Can, I'd love to hear your thoughts around this, Layla. Yeah, I think this is a very important topic and I'm happy that you brought it up because it can be uncomfortable for some people, whereas I think it doesn't need to be. I still remember I shared the blog about this, I think last year or year and a half ago. And there were some people who were so into my work and they would, they were into, they wanted to come on my events, things like that. And then as soon as they saw this blog, they disappeared. <laughs> so they would unfollow, leave the groups, everything, because maybe they felt uncomfortable that, oh no, I can't just take this knowledge and do what I want with it. And it's not about, it's, <laughs> and that's fine. I, it doesn't bother me, but as you said it's all about appreciation it's not about not wanting to share because if you go to Morocco and you just talk to women in the street if you can't speak to them they will share and they don't expect anything in return if you just ask a question like please oh can you tell me what they do for the new mother and women just share with me and they don't expect anything in return but I always give them something especially because I know we have a lot of people who are very 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 poor in Morocco so I, it's just a way to help. But what I'm doing, I was very scared in the beginning. Okay, how am I going to do this correctly? Because I, myself, I don't want to appropriate anything. I'm Moroccan. I've lived there. My whole family is Moroccan. Everyone is Moroccan. And I work with traditional midwives. So I just make sure that within my own work, that when I sit with a traditional midwife, I'm paying her and paying her well. So I pay her... Uh, you know, a fee that I tell her, okay, well, let's agree on a fee. Even though they never want to take anything, they just say, no, 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 we don't want anything. This is not, you know, God gave us this knowledge and we don't want to, and then they'll just say, whatever you want, whatever you want. And I will have to literally fight to give them 
their their fee literally i would have to make up a story no okay this is just a gift one of the midwives was like no way i'm not taking this and i know she's needy but she was like no way so i put it in an envelope i said this is not a payment this is just a gift this is a gift to you and then she was like okay <laughs> i'll take it bless her so basically what people don't understand when they hear about morocco i'll just speak about my own country so they think it's you know this exotic fancy you know romantic place which it is and we had especially in tangier i lived in tangier there were so many writers and famous artists who lived in tangier and they used to write novels and matisse the famous painter used to make famous paintings over there anyway so maybe this is the impression they see but they don't see all the poverty we have you know a lot of poverty in morocco so usually i always tell people when i want to give charity i don't need to search for any online uh, you know, charity I worked with lots to give my money to. I can just call my dad and say, okay, I want to donate this much, just give it to somebody. And there's always, always, always families in need. So people don't see this. So they, many people, uh, one of the traditional midwives just told, told, told me recently that this lady from, I would think, I don't know whether it was Sweden or Switzerland, she wasn't sure, something with an S from Europe. And she went to, to uh, Morocco. She found her, I'm not sure how, Anyways, she sat with her for three whole days, learning all her traditions and secrets and special medicines that even I don't take from her or share because I know that's special to her. And I don't want to share that because I don't even have the, the knowledge or expertise, you know, in that field. You need to study that for years to be able to, to share that. Anyway, so she spent three days with her. And when she left, of course, the traditional midwife did not tell her okay if you sit with me I'm going to charge you this much or that much because this is how they work and then after the three days that lady went and picked some flowers or herbs from somebody's yard and just gave her that as her as her reward and the traditional midwife was telling my mom am I supposed to eat these plants or are they going to feed my family so the thing is yes the, yes the traditional midwife did not set out you know clear rules but this woman also knew that she, she had the money to travel all the way to morocco to stay there for a while to find her to probably i guess she had the translator so then why aren't you giving her money they don't want plants and things like that because they do, they are needy and they don't ask for money so and then this knowledge wherever she takes it to of course she's going to do some something with it so either teach people or offer some sort of service. So she will be benefiting from that. And Qabla Rahma, who did not benefit in the first place and will not continue to do so with her knowledge that she fought for years and her family through colonization, through wars, they fought to keep this alive. So at least they deserve something in return to help them feed their families and support themselves. They're not rich, they hardly get paid, they hardly get by. Every time I sit with her, She'll tell me like some personal stories of hers and she's always has tears in her eyes every time she's about to cry or sometimes she even does. And she just tells me of all her hardships and all the drama she's had, even in preserving this knowledge. She's had problems with her family and other people wanting to take it from her family. And so it's been a very, very difficult for her to even reach up to this day and keep this knowledge alive. So therefore, that's why it's important for students out there who want to study some sort of traditional care or post traditional postpartum care, look for people who are doing it in an appropriation free manner. And there are people out there. Often we are quick to complain that, oh, our traditions are lost, okay, but you can try to find some or there's nowhere to learn it from. What, what are we supposed to do? There are places, so I'm teaching, even not myself, there's many people out there. So I studied uh, Mexican Serrada with a woman in England and she's Mexican and she's appropriation free and she makes sure to give back to the uh, midwives she's learning with in her country and she buys the, the special, the rebozos handmade, not the fake ones, the replicated ones and she's giving back continuously. So that's, that's the kind, even for myself, if I study something else just out of interest, I make sure to do it that way. So with our program as well, it's all appropriation free. And because I know what the, what women are going through in Morocco, everything I do, make sure to give back to them. So myself, even though I'm Moroccan, I could have just said, okay, I'm Moroccan, 
people have given me this knowledge, I can share it and that's the end of it. But it doesn't work like that. So even though I pay them, every time I sit with them, I'm still giving back. So sometimes I do workshops for free, even out of pocket, and I'll send the money to them. Or just through every program, retreat, anything that I sell, I'm donating money to those uh, traditional midwives and to other women in the community to help, you know, to help them because they're helping us with this knowledge which has come from centuries. And then people may complain that, oh, this your program is, for example, too expensive. So let's say 1,000 British pounds. Imagine what can we do with the 1,000 British pounds? Sometimes we'll just spend that on on whatever, you know, we like something and we'll buy it. But for knowledge that's coming from generations and generations that you can use for further generations, you can start a business, you can grow your own business. And this is sacred knowledge coming from people who have preserved it and people still benefiting from it. So we need to be open and listen to all these stories and these things. It's not just, oh, okay, I heard about this tradition. Let me go and take it and use it. For example, even when I shared my uh, free training, so I shared some food recipes, I shared the, the womb steaming recipe from Qabila, uh, Rahma, and just a few other things that we shared. And some people were already saying, oh, it's okay, so I, I don't need to do the course, I can just take this and start implementing it in my work, or, okay, can you tell me about that? Why aren't you giving us more knowledge? Why aren't you <laughs> giving us more of this? And I was like, okay, let me breathe. I'll try to be professional. So, okay, you've had five days of free knowledge coming from Morocco. So take that and use it properly. Just reference it and say where you've gotten it from. I'm sharing it so you can use it, so it can benefit your life and lives of other women. But if you want to know more, I can't share everything, first of all, in a short period of time, because this takes time to learn. And also it costs money for myself. Even to put on a free training, it costs me quite a bit of money to do it properly. And then I also need to give back to other people. So apart from running your own business, you're giving back. So we need to be careful. I think it's just some people innocently do not know. Many people, you know, have not even heard of the word appropriation. And that's fine. That's why we're here talking about it. It's not to blame anyone or say, oh, the white women are doing this. It's not about that. There's even people of color who, who I know are appropriating other people's work. And there's white people as well who are doing it. So it's just a matter of discussing it here like we're doing and letting people know. So just research what you're, if you want to teach something, research it, research the trainers, be willing to pay for it and absorb the knowledge and you can continuously give back. So some of my students want to give back themselves so they can send a donation to them as well for using that knowledge, although they don't have to because they did that in the beginning, but that's just an, another type of appreciation for this knowledge. We just don't want it to be diluted as well, because some people learn something or see something and then they will change it. So there's some people who are teaching closing of the bones, like the, the Mexican closing, and then they'll add in these chakras, drumming, and all sorts of things that were not originally taught or done. And when I speak to people of the culture, they really don't like that because it's being adapted and not standardized the way it should be done because it loses its power when we change it. You know, we can just change it up, include this, put some music in, put this in, put that in. But then you're losing power of that medicine. And even for the women you serve, they're not get, getting the full benefit by you changing it, by you not giving back. So these are just things we can start to think about. And it's very simple. There are programs out there. Lots, I'm not talking about my own. There's lots of other programs and live workshops of women from the culture who, who are teaching this stuff respectfully and appropriation free. And you can learn from them and do the work that you want to do. So yeah, it's all about the appreciation. Uh, but not only, sorry, I just wanted to add because some people were also saying, oh, why can't we just reference it? Let's take something and then just say, oh, this is from, for example, Qabla Rahma. Yeah, it's fine to reference it, but also it goes further than that. We need to be giving back as well. So when you go to a program or you send money, that's what's actually helping her. So that's an important point as well. Aspects, 
Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. I actually saw that thread, I think, on your Facebook group about the woman <laughs> from Sweden or Switzerland, I can't remember either. And I was appalled. I think I commented and lots of other people did. It was just seems like such a horrendous um, way of taking advantage of someone, especially from coming from such a wealthy country. Mm. Yeah, like you say, it costs a lot of money to travel and for her to be there and then not to have that insight to give back. And such a, it's a very blatant uh, example of cultural appropriation. And I think it's it's a really tricky thing and it's going to need ongoing conversation, really open conversation. So I'm so glad, like you said, we are having that. And, and everyone's going to have different understandings and takes on that. And really, as someone, um, depending on where you're coming from, it doesn't matter where you're from, like you say, if you're... Uh, gaining knowledge from another culture and then using that somehow to benefit yourself and others, you need to really talk with quite a few people in that culture about what they would deem as respectful, how they how you could give back and how you can honour that knowledge. And I guess the danger with adapting things from outside of your culture is the the common term Chinese whispers. So you say something to someone, they change it a little mm. bit and pass it around, and by the time it gets around the circle, it's a completely different message. Mm. And that can happen with any practice. So you might just change it a little bit, and then the next person sees you doing that and changes a little bit, and before long it's completely changed. It's nothing like the original, and that's why it's so important that it stays in its original form. So thank you. I feel like I'm still learning so much. And for anyone who's out there with ancestry from the British Isles, so I have a lot of Irish, Scottish, a little bit of British, possibly Scandinavian, there is actually a bit of information out there. And I'm going to start talking and writing about that more. I've sort of been collecting and learning and and I'm going to start documenting that journey for anyone who wants to um, look at what I've found and I'll send links to other people too. So there is stuff out there as well as sort of um, localised. So like I said, there's certain things that grow really well here. I've got the added um, complexity that of um, the amazing Indigenous traditional wisdom here and the plants that grow here were used by Indigenous people and learning about those and trying to be respectful there too. But looking at where you are locally, as far as your resources, what's around, like I have lots of olive oil, so... I'm going to start using that a bit more because it's such a great <laughs> local um, resource. Um, then food, like I find, I really feel like food's such a great way that we can share. So there might be some practices that for me I'll go, mm, you know what, that's really beautiful. I'm going to be inspired by that because that brings has certain elements of bringing warmth and using herbs, but I'm going to try and adapt it to the herbs I have here in my culture. But food really feels like something that we all share. So no matter where we're from, we might have our traditional dishes, but we all eat globally, usually, a lot of us um, mm. these days. And that's such a beautiful way that you can nurture a new mother and gain inspiration. Um, I actually have a tagine, Layla. <laughs> I searched and searched. And I love it for a few reasons. Um, it's beautiful, so it brings beauty into my cooking in my kitchen, but mm -hmm. it's really practical in the way it cooks and the way the steam circulates and stays inside the tagine and cooks mm -hmm. um, to make food really soft. So, yeah, I love my tagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in Morocco, so the tagine is the pot itself, but also the most many dishes that are cooked in the tagine are called tagine. So you have the chicken tagine, vegetable tagine, lamb tagine, this tagine. So it's <laughs> names of both, but yeah, it's very practical. Wow. So you can just put everything inside and then it just cooks and steams it um, and it's healthy. So if you use just natural clay, try to not use anything glazed inside. Yeah. So yeah. It's it's mm. perfect <laughs> for cooking. That's good to know that it's. I think I had seen that it was both. The term can be used both ways. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then I guess also from the perspective of looking at a cultural appreciation over appropriation is that looking at the commonalities of postpartum care as inspiration. So, mm. so there's warmth, and there's nurturing, and there's the social supports that are so important. 
usually there's some sort of um, ritual. And I've forgotten mm -hmm. the one in there. There's another one. Um, and Moroccan postpartum care has a really beautiful way of honouring the new mother with ritual. Would you care to share a little bit about that? Yes, definitely. So as you said, throughout different countries, we have similar concepts. So the concepts of the, the 40 days, more or less, resting, warmth. So I've never seen a traditional culture who still holds on to the 40-day traditions, but promoting cold for the new mom. So nowadays we have, sometimes in the West, um, women being recommended to use cold pads or these, I don't know what they call them, to, to help with the inflammation or bruising or anything like that. But in the traditional cultures, we do not recommend cold at all. So the warmth is is more beneficial, we believe, for the new mother and will help her to heal fully, so without having the cold, and will help her to heal properly and not to provide any ailments in the future. So that's the whole concept. So it's always warmth, support, and then women supporting women and a community. And this is common in most places that do similar things. The only difference is the type of rituals. So there may be different celebrations, different rituals. So in Morocco, for example, we have the, we use henna a lot, henna. So it's a herb and it's used for medicine, but also beautification. So the hands and feet are adorned for the new mother as a form of celebration. And the new mother is compared very much to a new bride in Morocco. So all the traditional midwives and the elders would say, the new mother before, so before, back in the day, she used to be just like a bride. But they tell me themselves that nowadays things are changing. The new mother gives birth and she's standing downstairs outside the house like a soldier on the first day. That's one of the midwives said to me. So before she was like a bride and a bride in Morocco is very important as well. So if you've been to a Moroccan wedding, it lasts for ages, lots of preparation. There's lots of outfit changes and lots of rituals and ceremonies that take place. So we have special ceremonial trays that we prepare with significant items. And so the new mother was on that same status. So she was very important and people would come to visit the new mother, not because they wanted to disturb her or just to see the baby, but they actually wanted to see her because it was uh, like a blessing to be by the feet of the new mother because she was very special. And so rituals like henna, getting celebrated, uh, beautification, they use kohol in the eyes. And that's again, not only for beautification, but when you use the natural traditional one, they make it by hand. And that's also very good for the eyes to help with preventing any infections or anything like that. And interestingly, my husband's cousin, who's a Syrian Bedouin as well, uh, she just told me that they would use the kohul in the eyes for at least seven days or 40 days, even better, again, to protect the eyes. So this was also something important for new mothers. And other rituals, such as a traditional bath, and we use different herbs. Everything is natural, natural products, natural soaps. Um, womb steaming, which is part of the bath as well. So this is one ritual. We have a form of closing the bones using traditional cloths. That's another ritual. Um, we have celebration parties depending. Uh, sometimes it happens after seven days, sometimes after 40 days. So family and friends are invited and they share meal together. The women could be on one side and then they have dancing together. And the new mother doesn't need to do anything. She just relaxes. She can stay laying in her bed. She gets food served to her. She gets to see people coming and celebrating her. And I was talking about this recently. So in the West, people are always promoting, don't have anyone around. It's better to be alone. You need to have rest. You need to take care of yourself. I understand if your family, if you don't have a good relationship and some people were saying, yeah, what if they're toxic then that's a whole different we just use common sense if you're if you're not in good relations with your family or they're not going to be helpful at all and really just cause stress and problems then of course you can work around that and find other help maybe paid help or friends or fam other family or neighbors but rather than promoting people to stay away from you, we should be promoting them to be helping you to be part of your village. Of course, there may need to be some education on how we need the support and what kind of support we need. So 
of course, it's not about just having, I think nowadays that's the thing. People think, okay, if people come around and I just given birth, they want me to get up and serve them and to feed them and to entertain them. But that's, that's, not, the, that's not the way it works. The whole point of having them there and the, traditionally it was a given. So we didn't have to tell people, oh, I'm going to give birth soon. Oh, would you be able to come and help me? It was a given that, okay, she's going to give birth the family is coming or she's going to stay with the family and even the neighbors would take turns to cook the special traditional dishes that would help her here and they all knew so it, she didn't the new mother didn't have to say oh please can you cook me the special chicken dish or that dish with these herbs they knew so they would just make it and bring it and they would follow all the guidelines so that was a given so hopefully by doing these kind of podcasts and sharing more together people start to understand how important and vulnerable the new mother is, that she needs this support, especially within the first 40 days as a minimum. And then the family around her can be able to come without causing stress and be there just to help her. So can they cook? Can they clean? Can they do something beneficial? And of course, there's lots of postpartum doulas as well, and they can help too. So so that's, that's about it on that topic. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like we've gained some um, great things from modernization, but we have yes. lost some really, really important things. And mm-hmm. in Australia, the leading cause of death, I say this a lot, but I'm going to keep on saying it. <laughs> um, the leading cause of death in the first year after a mother gives birth is suicide. Not in the first yeah. six months, mm-hmm. but in the first 12 months. And this is serious. Mm-hmm. This is one of my most leading um passions that kind of keeps the fire alive mm-hmm. and also it for people that don't think it's serious are sort of saying well it is serious but some a woman shouldn't have to get to that point where she is feeling so tired and so unsupported and experiencing such mental health issues we should be getting it earlier and there's mm-hmm. a whole spectrum of mental health issues that aren't necessarily needing a name that a woman will feel in isolation and I feel like mm-hmm whole movement in um in countries like australia and america to be on your own and retreat after a baby was was good in some ways it was kind of making people think about the fact that we need to protect the mother and protect the baby but the mother can't do that on her own so that's saying take mm-hmm. care of yourself i'm like oh try to i do the big breath thing again that's where <laughs> really loving compassionate support networks around and yeah obviously if it's toxic with the family then we need to build our village in other ways and that might be part because the fact is that our economic structures mean that sometimes our parents who especially the mothers who once wouldn't have been working outside the home as much are now Mm. working outside the home so they might not be available as much so you might they might be there partly and then partly paid to care and support mm-hmm. or maybe bring your friends and your neighbors like you say but um yeah i'm gonna keep on <laughs> yeah on definitely i always uh, i didn't have statistics but i'm always mentioning about the postpartum depression the mental illnesses suicide like for me it's just like in morocco i've never heard of uh, maybe it's happened you know doesn't mean there's no postpartum depression or anything like that but it's very low but to hear women you know, having to go through that experience because they had no support. It really, you know, I just have, I'm speechless many times. And that's why I always get motivated that to share, to share, to share more and more so people can wake up and see how difficult it is to be a new mother. Even for myself, I had my parents for all three births, my parents, both of them, my father and my mother. Luckily, my mom's not working, but my dad has his own business. So he will leave that you know, he has someone there managing it and he would leave it for months on end and he would come with my mother to make sure they were there for me to support me, especially when you have other children. And even if I I had a cleaner who was hired separately, you still always need (laughs) so much support, so much help. And even my mom was cooking, uh, doing everything for me, my father as well. And I still had so much, I had problems with uh, breastfeeding with all three children. So that always made my postpartum hard. I always used to say, if my breastfeeding was smooth and easy, I would have had the best postpartums ever. But that always caused so much stress. I used to feel guilty. I used to be stressed going and coming to see, you know, different uh, consultations, the lactation consultants and things like that. So it's, 
every woman is struggling with different things in different ways. And that's just one of the aspects for me. It was breastfeeding and there were other things, but it's just difficult. So for women to have to go through that alone and be isolated, I can't even really imagine what they go through because I had support and mm. still it was hard. So if people don't have support, I don't, I, they're really warriors, these women, because they're, you know, trying their best to make it. And we need to educate the partners as well. They need to know what the new mother goes through and how to support her. As you said, some women may be working and have to provide an income as well. So she, I, I hope that they don't have to be rushed into going back to work, having that burden and stress of providing for the family. So for me, I didn't have any of these stresses and it was still hard. So my husband, he was covering all the expenses of the, you know, the house, the food, everything. So even when I work and make my own money, I just enjoy it the way I want. <laughs> so, so imagine if I had that stress of having to get back to work okay I need to make money I need to help the income of the family and I need to get my strength back and I need to serve other people it's really mind-blowing that's why we keep we have a special saying in Morocco that the new mother's grave is open for 40 days so people need to listen to that it's not that it, they actually go and dig her grave but it's just a saying to show that at least for the first 40 days she's extremely vulnerable so we need to take care of her. Otherwise, that grave is open and waiting. So that could mean many different ways how she could be in that grave, you know, could be from mental illness. It could be from the lack of support. It could be from isolation. could be from not taking care of her, not eating well. Many, many different uh, reasons, but it's there. And this has been said for centuries and centuries. So we need to pay attention and support these women and it's great that you're doing this because hopefully different people will hear and start to share and talk about the importance of this so mm. thank you mm, thank you it's great the work you're doing also yeah i had um two different postpartums my mother-in-law is filipina so mm. she um didn't get to experience postpartum care but she knew about it from her siblings mm. because she was already here in australia um so I got special dishes and for my first baby I lived, my partner and I lived with them at that time, we were saving to buy a house. So, um, and then by the time my second came along we were in our own, our own home and I still had some support but not as much because people work and things like that. So I really experienced, um, even with some support I experienced the isolation and mm. if I did it again, which I'm not sure if I'm <laughs> plus I'm moving into the, building my business. but um. I, yeah, for people that don't have any, you're right, These, it's normal for anyone out there listening who's going, yes, yes, I struggled, yes, I needed my village. It was normal that you felt that way. So mm -hmm. this is my issue with um, postpartum being synonymous. When people hear the word postpartum, mm -hmm. they think depression. So we need to change that to postpartum care to prevent depression. Mm -hmm. That says a lot about our culture that as soon as you type the word postpartum into Google, you get depression and anxiety come up rather than the positive preventions and alternatives. So for anyone out there listening, it is normal that if you're alone and isolated, especially in those early weeks and months, that you're going to feel sad, you're going to feel down. And there are supports out there, which I'll pop into the show notes of this as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there is a growing movement um, of women talking about this and dedicating mm -hmm. their lives to this. And so, yeah, anyone who wants to reach out to either Layla or I and learn how they can learn more or get involved, feel free to do that. And before we go, I think we've been talking for an hour and I feel like I could talk. Yeah. <laughs> the kids are going to break down the door soon. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could show you my garden, Layla. I have mint abundance, so much mint. Oh, yes. Oh, and I want some. <laughs> I'm sure you have some, but um, I'd love to show you. Um, one day if you come to Australia I would love for you to share a little bit about where people can find you and some of the projects you're doing the NAFSA project I have trouble saying yes, yes. <laughs> other exciting projects and retreats and okay yes yeah I just want I'll, I'll share about that in a second I just wanted to, to say further about what you were just mentioning 
uh, women feeling isolated. And if we look at the way it was before, so even in, like I'm British, so I was born in England. I lived there for about six years, then we moved. So before traditionally, it was the same as it was in Morocco. There were women were supporting women. There was that village. There was the codependency supporting each other. But so I suppose as it became more developed, more modern globalization, everyone became or they're telling everyone to be independent. So women, women should be independent. They should be strong women, you know, and the words are used differently. So feminist, independent. So for myself, I consider myself to be a feminist. I'm an independent woman, but still I make sure that I'm getting support even if I'm paying for it or I'm, you know, telling my, my parents knew that they should be with me or my husband, if he's paying for things, that doesn't mean I'm not independent or I'm not, you know, we have different ways, uh, the way we view things. If you don't get back up on your feet, if you're not helping yourself and doing everything for yourself, then you're not strong. You're not um, independent woman. And I think in the West, the women have been, what's the word to use? I'm not sure, but they keep telling them this kind of thing. So it's hard for them to accept the help or to build that village. So slowly, we need to start working on that, as you've been saying. But yes, so if people want to know more about what I do, you can check out my website. It's leilab.co.uk. My name is Leila with a L-A-Y-L-A. Everyone always spells my name wrong with an E-I or an A-I, especially in Morocco, because the French way is is with an E. Anyways, uh, so I'm the founder of the Nefset Project School. Nefset means new mother in Arabic, which is great because the new mother also has her own special name and that's used for about for about a year. So even with the bride, she has her own name. It's like Arusa, so bride. And she'll have that for at least a year. People will say, oh, this is our, our bride. This is our bride. So for the new mother, it's Nefset in Arabic, but in Morocco, in the Moroccan dialect, it's Nfisa, so it's slightly changed. So, so I have the Nefset Project School, which is an online training program for birth workers or any women who want to learn more about traditional Moroccan postpartum medicine. And then once you go through the course, you can start to offer services to new mothers in your community if you wish to. And in that program is where we learn all about the six stages of care that I talked about and the different rituals and you learn step by step how to offer them to new mothers uh, we just closed the enrollment for the program but anyways you can still have a look on the website and just get in touch with us we also run uh, an annual retreat it's called the tribal sisterhood retreat in morocco so we have one this june um, it's sold out but we'll have one in 2020 as well and on this retreat is where we learn everything on the online program, but we're doing it live. So you get to experience it, to breathe it, to be with other sisters from all around the world. And we just we get to meet traditional midwives. We get to be together. We have uh, traditional parties. So I try to replicate everything as best and as traditionally as possible. And we get to experience the traditional bath, the steams, everything, the nourishing foods and to learn how to to do them and experience them ourselves. So it's just a beautiful, amazing week of sisterhood and sharing together, which every woman needs at some point in her life. So you can check out my website and all my stories and more about me is, is there as well. So thank you, Shelley, for bringing me here to talk to you today. It was thank fun. You. you make such a good point about feminism as well, that I feel like the feminism was uh, models and the waves of feminism were mm. based on um, replicating a more more masculine traits and there's uh -huh. nothing wrong with those traits they have their place but the feminine wisdom and traits are more about the interconnectedness and and strength in vulnerability and supporting and I really feel there's a new wave of feminism coming through where people are, are realizing that so yeah you make a really good point there and your mm -hmm. retreat sounds amazing thank you <laughs> thank you the women will thoroughly enjoy that. Yeah. I really look forward to following your journey and hearing Thank about you. And Likewise. Layla's also a mother to two. You've got two children. Three, three, three. Three children. <laughs> <laughs> really inspiring yeah. for me as a, a mother at home, setting up her own business, yeah. I'm sure, and many others. 
yeah, they're all small. The eldest is five. The next one is three and a half, and the baby is almost two. And they're they're next door with the nanny, so they're being oh, patient wow. now. As I said, soon they'll be knocking down this door. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, mine will be coming through the door anytime soon. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Thank you so much, Layla. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope lots of women get to hear and share about this. Thanks for listening, and if there was something there for you, please head on over to the pollinationmamas.com webpage, sign up for latest podcasts, nourishing recipes, blogs, and much more. Head on over to Anchor FM at Pollination Mamas and sign up for the podcast there, or to Facebook and Instagram and say hello. But importantly, share widely with anyone you may know who would gain something from this. Thank you.